Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. Happy New Year to you. Before we jump into the interesting topic for today, uh, this time of fake news and Trump's tweets, we're going to revisit the good and the bad of our digital world through the lens of folklore. We have with us folklorist Lynn McNeil, and later in the hour we'll be talking with uh, another folklorist, uh, Jeannie Thomas. Uh, both uh, from Utah State University. Before we uh, jump into that, uh, we want to uh, follow up from our uh, two-hour discussion on Friday, Special Access Utah, uh, reacting to President Obama's designation of the Bears Ears National Monument. And uh, several comments came in after the program had closed, so we want to get them on for you now. Uh, Here is Doug in St. George. He has emailed us. He says, I've spent countless hours in Utah's backcountry as well as in the incomparable Gold Butte area. One of the main reasons Utah is a great place to live in and visit is its federally administered lands. Thank you, President Obama, for the monument designations during your administration. Meanwhile, our local politicians like Mr. Bishop are eager to publicize themselves by wasting taxpayer money on quixotic attempts to fight the federal government. In 25 years of using public lands in Utah, I've never felt an adverse effect of federal land administration. But every day I'm harassed by dishonest telemarketers, internet scams, calls from con men posing as IRS agents, etc. Please, Mr. Bishop, stop wasting time and money on irrelevant issues and do something to protect our consultants, your uh, constituents rather, from constant real harm of internet crime. That is Doug in uh, St. George. Uh, thanks for that, Doug. Uh, next up is Adele. Adele, uh, see where Adele is from. Adele in Castle Valley. Adele says, thank you for hosting this discussion. I'm greatly in favor of President Obama's designation of Bears Ears as a national monument. I support the Antiquities Act and President Obama's use of it to designate protections of these lands. I find Congressman Rob Bishop's arguments hollow and tiresome. Over the years, I've written letters and filled out endless questionnaires on land use, both on state and federal lands. My overwhelming conclusion is that the Utah delegation has no interest in meaningful protections at all, beneficial management, nor are they interested in conservation of wildlands, wildlife, clean waters, clean air, or excellent public education for future generations. What are they, they are interested in is power and control for commercial interests by the fossil fuels industry and questionable corporate investment no matter how shady and greedy. For one thing, how sincere are those cries down there in San Juan County about school kids and their education? I'd like to know what is Congressman Bishop's position and voting record in Congress on public education? What is Governor Herbert's and the Utah delegation's stance on adequately paying teachers' salaries to maintain excellent public education? I suspect their position is to gut public education and any other public commons, federal lands, for example. And no, as far as local control is concerned, who are these locals who just want to exploit lumber? Uh, Potash, for example, repeatedly show resentment and lack of facts. I do not see them as taking care of the homeless or working to raise funds for recycling or search and rescue. I'm also in support of the Intertribal Commission's participation and guidance in wise management and use of these lands. This is long overdue. Lastly, as a longtime resident of Grand County, a little curbing of the Travel Council and global advertising is advisable. Otherwise, tourism suffers due to uglification, air pollution, and noise. Please also do try to visit rural areas in the east, say New York State, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, and southern Appalachians. You'll be very surprised at how much is still wild there, how much economic difficulty exists, and how similar are the problems with loss of public commons everywhere, including public education. Thank you, President Obama, and thanks for all the wonderful comments. That's Adele in Castle Valley. Thanks for that, uh, Adele. 
Uh, you can uh, send your comments to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and uh, you can find this entire two-hour discussion from Friday on our website at uh, upr.org. Let's uh, move into another comment from Adele. She says, in response to the comment about First Nations tribes having been misplaced and pushed west from elsewhere to the Four Corners area, the Dine Navajo, the Ute tribes, Shoshonean, the Great Basin tribes, Zuni, Hopi, etc., and every other related tribe I've not mentioned who are represented by the Bears Ears Intertribal uh, Commission are all ancestral residents in the Four Corners area for at least a thousand years. None of these tribes are newcomers to the area. The Athabascan tribes, Navajo and Apache, came to this area in pre-Columbian times. The tribes who fled or were pushed west, quote-unquote, by white settlers and are removed, quote-unquote, from their ancestral homes east of the Mississippi River Basin are now primarily in the northern Midwest or Great Plains reservations, Canada or elsewhere. None of them whatsoever are in the Four Corners or Bears Ears vicinity. Their histories also do need indeed merit an accurate accounting. Thank you. That's uh, from Adele. And uh, let's see, let's uh, go next uh, to a comment from Deborah. <clears throat> Deborah says, Dear Tom, weighing in on the topic on uh, UPR, my question to Utah elected officials is whether uh, Zion were not designated in a national monument by federal government, would Utah elected officials have done it? I believe they would have uh, had the same response to Zion as Bears Ears. Our boundaries are artificial. And recent, as states, ask any Native American, our land that is special should be for all citizens who are flocking to Zion in such numbers that the park is almost overwhelmed by them. People want special lands to be set aside. People need the land. I come from a ranching family and have lived in several states in the West. Would any monuments or parks be designated if up to the states? I applaud President Obama for his courage and foresight. That is Deborah. Thanks for that, Deborah. Uh, here's a, a follow-up from uh, Father Rick in Cedar City. He said, thanks for reading my long email. <laughs> Bless you in 2017 and all your good work. And thanks for coming in loud and clear in Garfield County. I would just say to Father Rick, your email was long but very poetic. Uh, I think uh, everyone enjoyed your email uh, waxing poetic about our need for land. Um, let's see. And uh, I'll give the final word to our only commenter, uh, at least from the ranks of our listeners, who opposed uh, Bears Ears. I think it's something like 35 to 1, um, which which is fine, but I'd appreciate uh, this email on the other side. This is Vivian. I'll give the last word to, to here. I believe that the Bears Ears area needs some protection, but millions of acres? The area proposed is way too large. This is a great opportunity to work together. I'm disappointed that most of the comments regarding the proposed monument have a my way or no way attitude. This nation was founded on compromise. There should be consideration for all of us that love it and use that area. I'm disappointed that the people of Utah, especially those of southern Utah, had such a small voice in this decision. So thanks for that, uh, Vivian. And keep those comments coming. And by the way, you can listen to the entire program, our two-hour special from uh, fr Friday, at our website, upr.org. Welcome now to uh, Axis Utah. In her TEDx USU talk, folklorist Lynn McNeil says when most people think of folklore, they think of the old, the rural, the rustic. They typically don't think of the internet, a technology that, if anything, is commonly judged to be dismantling our culture, destroying our interpersonal skills, squashing our cultural vitality, killing our individual creativity. 
Surprisingly, however, communications technologies like mobile phones, tablets, and computers have become the locus of a huge expanse of contemporary folk culture. Understanding the nature of folklore helps us identify the positive elements of digital culture. So in this extraordinary time of fake news and Trump's tweets, we're going to revisit the good and the bad of our digital world through the lens of folklore. We're also going to talk about trends in digital folklore in the last year and coming into this year and what those trends mean. And later in the program, we'll be talking with Jeannie Thomas, uh, head of the Department of English at Utah State University. Right now, we have with us uh, Lynn McNeil, who is Assistant Professor of Folklore at Utah State University, Director of the Folklore uh, online folklore at USU? Yes, we have a an online minor that students who are regional campus or distance students here at USU, you can earn the minor here on campus or you can earn the minor online. And uh, with Jeannie Thomas, you look at trends in digital folklore. That right. is correct. Jeannie and I are both co-directors of the Digital Folklore Project, which began here at Utah State University in 2014 and has mm-hmm. been going strong for the last three years. So as, as I was... Coming into the new year, and we're thinking about, um, uh, you know, the extraordinary events that happened. I guess the top of mind probably is the election. Absolutely. Which seemed like it went on for five years um, and ended, and ended in a surprise, I think, to many. Pollsters got it wrong. Yep. Half the country is wounded and, and uh, you know, withdrawing for a time, maybe, and thinking about getting re- reengaged. The other half is is surprised and exultant. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been thinking a lot here at uh, UPR about fake news. And by the way, on Thursday, we're going to have uh, USU journalist professor Matt LaPlante on with us talking about uh, fake news. And uh, the, the tweeter and treat chief, right, you were telling me this morning, that's uh, kind of become a, a tag for our president-elect. Absolutely. The hashtag tweeter in chief is now being used to describe Donald Trump mm-hmm. and his sort of method of communication that favors the, uh, the Twitter account over the press conference. Some among us may be tempted to run for the hills, to, mm-hmm. to become neo-Luddites, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know. And I was thinking about a program we did a while back. There, there was a lady, I'll, I'll pull up the document here, um, a, a lady who wrote a book uh, called A Year Unplugged, A Family's Life Without Technology. This is um, Elizabeth Cheryl Kohlberg. Uh, so we did a program on that and talked with her, and, and she had her reasons for taking her family unplugging her family. You weren't on the program as a guest, but you responded to the program. Yes, I did. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hold back from offering my opinions on this. I think that for people who want to unplug, it can be an amazing thing to do. It can show us a lot about ourselves, remind us of what life was like not that long ago. The mid-1990s is really when for most people's experience, the internet came on the scene. The early 2000s is when social media and more mobile technology hit. So it's not, it's not like we're going back to the dark ages or just, you know, maybe the early 1990s. But I think one of the most important things to keep in mind when we look at the potential societal ills that communications technology have wrought upon us is to really pay attention to where the blame belongs. Because I don't think that the blame really can fall on the technology. The blame needs to fall on the people who are using that technology. That's really who's behind all of this. And this is a common thing that media scholars and communications technology scholars have talked about for a long time. Every time a new technology comes along, there are 
panics. There are fears that this is going to be the thing that finally deprives us of our humanity. There's actually a wonderful quote. I wish I had it with me. Um, Going all the way back to Plato, that is talking about how the alphabet is going to destroy our society because we no longer will have to remember things. We'll just get to write them all down. Um, And when we think about, we don't think anymore of the alphabet as a mediating technology in our communications, um, but it is just as much as the internet. And it's really not the internet itself that stands to affect our culture or our social interaction. It's how we use it. And that's much harder. It's it's nice to think, well, I will just eliminate communications technology from my life. I will unplug problem solved. And that's really not the case. We still have many opportunities to be ungracious, rude, thoughtless, overly critical um, to other people, whether we have the internet or not. So the much harder task for all of us is to use this technology that offers so many benefits to us as well and manage it better in our lives, you know, pick and choose, be able to do something other than go cold turkey and say, how can I be a better person to my fellow human beings through this technology? And that's the much harder challenge than unplugging, in my opinion. Uh, Take your point. Um, For example, there are always bullies. Oh, yeah. But uh, the the phenomenon of cyberbullying, yep. uh, the the tool of the bullies have is uh, amplifies it. Right? Yes, and that's that's something we see. I think that's what the internet does to almost all aspects of social life. Is it exponentially expands it? So the bad things get worse, and the good things get better. Think about the the opportunities that that. Websites like GoFundMe and Kickstarter have provided for families in need, people who have hospital bills to pay. Suddenly, strangers who want to be charitable and don't want to choose a traditional you know, nationwide charity can donate directly to one family in need. And that's really a great opportunity, and it's been so expanded. But as you point out, so has a lot of the negative stuff, cyberbullying, harassment, things like that. And with that, I go back to how new this is. This is within 20 years, really, that we have this technology. I think it is it is fair to say that is not a lot of time for us to figure out how to handle mm-hmm. this. And mm-hmm. think about how long we as a society have had with television to figure out guidelines of what's appropriate content for what age, for what demographic, for what time of airing um, and what's appropriate on the on the more vernacular level. Do you watch television while eating dinner with your family? Is that appropriate? Is that something that people should do? And we've now had a few generations mm-hmm. to make those decisions. And when it comes to mobile technology and, and the internet and other communications technologies, we simply haven't. We have not yet had time to determine how much regulation is needed, what is polite, what is impolite, both on the, the institutional and the, the folk levels. Mm-hmm. Before we jump into uh, folk culture, mm-hmm. folklore, and, and the interesting ways that uh, our digital world is, is, is amplifying our tools there, right? Yeah. And, um, I want to get you to weigh in. We're going to talk about this in depth with Matt LaPlante on Thursday, but uh, this troubling trend of fake news and, yeah. and I th- this, this study... I think everybody's heard about at this point. That's that's very troubling. They studied, I think it's high school age uh, kids, mm-hmm. 
and uh, tested whether they could uh, determine fake news from real news. And, and the the bottom line is, the takeaway is, they couldn't. Yeah. You know, this is a topic that is very, very near and dear to my heart because as a folklorist, one of my areas of specialty is contemporary legends, which is more colloquially known as urban legends. And urban legends have been around pretty much as long as there have been people. But the study of them really started in the 1970s. And if we look at and, you know, we, we don't I don't need to get too in depth into the definitional elements of this from a, an academic perspective. But if we look at how we identify urban legends and how we identify fake news, it's almost entirely the same thing. Mm. And so this is something that folklorists have been thinking about for a while. And when it comes to urban legends, we tend to think of the classic sort of horror legends like the man with the hook on his hand or the person who has his kidneys stolen and wakes up in a bathtub full of ice. But all along with those horror-themed urban legends. We've also had news-based urban legends, stories about politicians, stories about local government, stories about corporations and commercial entities and things like that, um, that have always circulated as news, and they circulate as word-of-mouth news. And when we hear one that we know is fake, we often think, oh, man, how could anyone believe something so ridiculous? But the problem is, is the insidious nature of urban legends is that they don't come to us labeled urban legends. It's people we trust. It's your friends. It's your parents. It's your family members saying, did you hear the latest news about X? Did you hear what so-and-so just said? Did you? Can you believe that Obama has said that you can no longer send Christmas cards to the military? That was a popular piece of fake news that circulated recently. Um, and when it's people you trust presenting it as already proven, already true, it goes into a different place in our brains that just sets it as expected. And we have to be really primed against that in order to even question it. So, of course, what ends up happening is that the news we hear, the fake news, the urban legends that we hear that match our worldview just slip into the back of our minds. We don't think critically about them. We don't scrutinize them. The ones we scrutinize are the ones we are inclined to disagree with. But, of course, that's something that circulates within different subgroups, different subcultures. The conservative population is sharing different fake news than the liberal population is sharing. And when they look at each other's fake news, they go, oh, that's obviously a lie. And when you look at your own fake news, it's not even that you think, oh, I 100% believe that. You just don't think about it. it. It comes from people you trust, and social media has made that way more likely. All of a sudden, the information that my family and friends are giving me is not orally shared. It's posted on Facebook. So instead of me looking at the source as either CNN or The Economist or Fox News or The Huffington Post, the source is my cousin, mm -hmm. my best friend from childhood. And that's a person who I inherently trust. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the unconscious process that my brain uses when it takes in this information. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really tricky thing to fight. We are living in an age where this combination of social media and the ability for false stories to visually mimic news, combined with what has always been the case when it comes to information sharing traditionally from our family and friends via urban legends, we have to be more critical, meaning critically thinking, than we have ever had to be before. And we need to turn that critical thinking more on the news that we agree with mm. than on the news we don't, because mm -hmm. that's where it is hardest for us. And that it doesn't matter 
what your political affiliation is. It's the stuff that you're inclined to be like, yeah, I always knew that guy would do something like that. Mm. If you agree, you need to think twice as hard as you would with something that you disagree with in order to really try and put a stop to the spread of false information. Mm. If you just join us, we're talking with folklorist Lynn McNeil. We're going to get into a little later in the program talking about trends in digital folklore. Right now we're talking about... uh, Digital good, digital bad, the good and the bad of our our digital world. Uh, And you're welcome to join this conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can join us uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter uh, at upraxcess. Um, So this gets us into education, Mm -hmm. or at least I'd like to, in my mind, it takes us to education. And this divide, um, and it gets into this, this, this growing divide, polarization in our, in our country. Uh, President-elect Trump famously said, I love the uneducated. Um, and uh, he ran a populist campaign, successful in the mm-hmm. end, populist campaign. Classic populism, uh, populists um, are very skeptical of the intelligentsia, of academia. academia. Yeah. Um, so there's that divide. And then about half the country, and here on public radio, we're sort of intelligentsia radio central, right? So we're maybe preaching to the choir here, but, uh, but, but one warning I would give to us, quote-unquote, is... We can tend to be very patronizing, and I saw that a lot mm-hmm. in the, in the mm-hmm. campaign. That unwashed mass that's, that's going for yeah. being led, being pied pipered by uh, by by Donald Trump. Yeah. So there's that divide. But if we're if we all have to be very careful about what news we're looking at, education has to come in here somewhere. It does, and I I think on a variety of levels. I think you're you're right. There's a sort of an inherent difficulty of saying, oh, what we need to do is educate everyone on how they can think more critically about this. Um, And then that immediately, of course, sounds patronizing, regardless of which side it's coming from, saying, I believe what I believe because I'm educated, and other people believe what they believe because they're not, is not a viable way of going about this. And I think that one of the first humbling experiences that anyone needs to take when looking into fake news is to understand how much of it we have already bought into. And that that's really an eye-opening experience. There are a lot of fact-checking and debunking websites out there. Snopes.com is one of them that has the seal of approval from folklorists. They do good research. And yet um, there have been several times where I've tweeted uh, a fact check from Snopes and gotten a huge amount of blowback from people saying, did you know Snopes has been discredited as as a liberal biased organization? And I often have to go online and show my students all the many times that Snopes has defended Donald Trump, Sarah Palin, George Bush. Um, and it's because of that idea that we're all in our own echo chambers, that the Internet really has contributed to. And I think one of the fascinating things about this is that as early as the 1990s, folklorists were talking about the danger of this. We tend to see the Internet as expansive, but one of the one of the outcomes of the ability to seek out more and more people on the internet is that you can find more and more people who think just like you. So, you know, we have the the negative side of if the only people you have access to conversationally, socially are in a tiny town, 
you you're limited by that. You're you're not going to get an expansive worldview. But you also have to contend with the people in that tiny town who disagree with you. On the internet, we can find enormous amounts of diversity, but we can also isolate ourselves by choosing to listen only to people with whom we agree already. And that's really dangerous. And I think it's going to take more than an easy swing of education to really start addressing this. And it's going to have to come from people on all sides realizing that they too fall prey Mm. to these same things. So we're going to have to put ourselves in situations where we're with people who we disagree with and and be able to talk to those people. Yes. And and I think it would probably be a safe worldview if we all approached news expecting to be disappointed by about half of it. Mm. That if, if, if the news we listen to or read every day is always stuff that conforms to our pre-existing worldview, we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. We should be hearing news that makes us uncomfortable. All of us should be. And that we don't want to think that, oh, man, I really don't want to like that guy, but I guess he did one good thing today. Mm-hmm. Um, we really need to be able to say that. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I think we'll get there. I Call me an optimist. But mm-hmm. I think so, we have been hit with so much change in how we share information in so little time that that it's only now that the the – the close relationship between something like urban legends and fake news is made so evident. Um, we we need to have a little time to know what to do about that, but I think we will get there. And I do think it's going to have to be, people are going to start having to cross the aisle. It's going to be a bipartisan effort, and it's going to require people to swallow their pride a little bit mm-hmm. on both sides. We're going to take a break here shortly and bring in Ginny Thomas. Uh, I think this is a good segue to folklore. Absolutely. Um, this idea of a divide and high culture, low culture, yep. and what uh, academia feels is culture and what the folk mm-hmm. think is culture, right? Well, and academics have folk culture just mm-hmm. as much as everyone else does. So we have you know, what we're hearing on the nightly news, what our institutions are telling us, and then we have what our folk groups are telling us, what our communities are telling us. And sometimes those are in direct conflict. So we hear one thing from the news and then from our friends and colleagues we hear, but now here's the real story. Mm -hmm. Here's what's really happening. And sometimes that's very compelling and sometimes that is more compelling. And we start to look at our institutions and see how much they have to gain from twisting or fabricating things. And we go, yeah, okay, no, I'm going to I'm going to go with the on the ground voice here. I'm going to go with the conspiracy minded voice Mm -hmm. here. That makes more sense to me. That fits my worldview. And that's something that that we all do at various times. Right. Uh, so in your TED Talk, you talk about the Brothers Grimm. Yeah. And uh, this is my characterization, but I guess from the point of view of some people, you know, they were doing the cat memes of their mm-hmm. of their time, right? The, yep. the, some people would have turned up their nose and said, that this is not worth studying, but they did. Yep. That's endured probably because it came from the people. Absolutely. Those, those and tales. I, and that's a great way to describe the work of folklorists is that they're looking at the creative output of everyday people. That's really what, what we have. And the Grimm's were, were unique in doing that. They recognized this genre of expression, the folktale, that other people scoffed at. It's not high literature. It's not art novels. Um, it's the stories that, that everyday people tell, and maybe even the least educated among everyday people. And with the Digital Folklore Project, that's what we're trying to capture. And I think even with folklore, sometimes it's the the grand folklore, the big stuff that rises to the top, the the 
the protest music and the long extended narratives. Even when the Grimm's were collecting, there was folklore they were bypassing, the political jokes, the whatever the equivalent to the 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 small scale internet meme would have been. And with the Digital Folklore Project, we sort of feel like we're we're getting beyond what even the Grimm's were able to do and give people a slice of everyday life of digital existence as as the months go by. We will pick that up after this break, and we will. Uh, we're talking with Lynn McNeil. We'll, we'll bring in Jeannie Thomas as well, and uh, you, hopefully. Uh, what uh, What is your take on the good and the bad of the internet? And uh, you can be honest with us. You can use an assumed name if you want to to avoid embarrassment from your friends. W- what do you really do on the internet? Versus <laughs> versus what 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 do you tell your what do you tell your friends uh, that you're doing? Uh, I'd love to hear from you. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. This is Brian Erickson and bringing more to life. Our parents may need us in ways that are very new to us. What is your role when a parent's abilities decline? An adult child's role is not to parent the parent, but rather to help your parent deal effectively with the changes that age brings. You are their advocate. You have the right to ask providers tough questions and take action. You are their partner and advisor. Assess the situation together, offer options and ask for their thoughts. Honor their wishes if doable. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. We have been talking about fake news. We're making transition to folklore and digital folklore. What that tells us about ourselves uh, in a recent uh, TEDx USU talk, I think this was from 2015, was it? Uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, folklorist Lynn McNeil says, when most people think of folklore, they think of the old, the rural, the rustic. They typically don't, typically don't think of the Internet, a technology that, if anything, is commonly judged to be dismantling our culture, destroying our interpersonal skills, squashing our cultural vitality, killing our individual creativity. Surprisingly, however, communications technologies like mobile phones, tablets, and computers have become the locus of a huge expanse of contemporary folk culture. And understanding the nature of folklore helps us identify the positive elements of digital culture. Uh, so in this extraordinary time of fake news and Trump's tweets, we are revisiting the good and the bad of our digital world through the lens of folklore. Lynn McNeil is assistant professor of folklore at uh, USU. She's in the English department at USU and has joined us in studio and continues to join us. And we bring in now uh, by telephone from New Hampshire, I believe, Jeannie Thomas, head of the Department of English at USU. Thanks for joining us. You bet, Tom. It's good to be with you. Good good to be with you. How are things in New Hampshire? They're cold. Cold, okay. <laughs> as, Just as like you, here. <laughs> as you would expect, Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, uh, thanks for joining us. I know that uh, that you and Lynn McNeil uh, head up the digital folklore uh, program, so we're, we're, we want to uh, jump in into this. Um, I don't know if you want to follow up on anything about uh, about fake news. We cited that depressing study where they they studied high schoolers, and uh, the the takeaway was that these young people could not <laughs> were unsuccessful in determining fake news from real news. Right. I think it goes to show how much we need to teach digital literacy. And um, projects like the Digital Folklore Project 
really get students to look at the Internet and take an analytical approach to it instead of just be a passive consumer. And I think we need to see more active um, analysis of what's happening in the digital world rather than just passive consumption. Uh, maybe follow up with that, and I'll have Lynn follow up as well. Uh, Jeannie Thomas, what uh, what sorts of things do you teach students about uh, about critically examining the you know digital world through the through the lens of folklore? Well, first of all, we teach them what an urban legend is and how to spot one, and which ones may be based in fact, and which ones are based in nothing. So, I, I want every student to have a kind of built-in urban legend detector. And we talk about conspiracy theories and why people believe them and um, what they look like. So it's just it's just teaching those uh, people those analytical skills to be able to uh, the skills that the high school kids were not getting. And it's in a way it's a shame because I think you could teach those skills in a fun way that kids would really get into. In a way, this is their world. I um. You ask what we do on the Internet. Well, unfortunately, I do a lot of work on the Internet, so I'm mm. always looking at it saying what's happening. I see a lot of, um, you know, it's really a, a teenager domain in some regards. They're a, a young person's playground to some extent. But I saw some stuff that, I, that we're not even able to capture on the Internet, but with classic folklore just right before the break. Kids were sending out texts to their parents that were the equivalent of the old prank phone calls, and the text was... <laughs> Mom or Dad, how do you cook a 25-pound turkey in the microwave? <laughs> and then they were laughing at the things their parents said to them in response. It was kind of <laughs> diabolical because, of course, parents want to help, and they were given this ridiculous task, and so they were, why are you asking this, but here's what I do, and then the kids were really hee-hawing over <laughs> it. So I think it would be really engaging so, some to things, work more with students. Some things never change. Uh, exactly. And, yeah. So Lynn McNeil, that's what we—that's what we're studying with with folklore, right? Just yeah. So we have a, a bigger world to, to to study with digital folklore. Absolutely, and I think Jeannie hit the nail on the head with that question of why would we believe this? You know, getting people prepared to recognize something that's fake when it is, but then that that important question of but why do people believe it? What's the what's the incentive? personally, culturally, socially, why are we inclined to believe these things that are not true? Because I think understanding that mechanism is what's going to really help us see it in the future the next time we come across something. And and even to understand ourselves better, oh, I can see why I would want this to be true. I can see why I would want the politician that I especially hate to be especially dumb or especially cruel. That that works for me. That makes me feel better about my worldview. And just just knowing that we have those impulses and that everyone has those impulses. It's I think it's a little too easy to write people off as, oh, you believe in urban legend because you're dumb. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's really not the case. There are there are some surprising cultural and social incentives to to jump on the bandwagon a lot of, of a lot of these things mm -hmm. and understanding that mechanism really, really helps. And, and seeing the role that technology plays in that is key. Uh, including in the political realm, because uh, that phrase you just said, I think a fair number of people believe you voted for Trump because you're dumb. Mm -hmm. Because you're misled, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, uh, you know, and that's going to be the crux, I think, of our political debate going forward. And that really does nothing to move us forward yeah. to, to, to make progress at all. Um, and I'm I'm sure there's 
equally negative opinions on the other side. You mm-hmm. voted for Hillary because you are dumb or because you are patronizing or elitist mm-hmm. or whatever the the adjective we could fill in there is. Um, and getting beyond that, I think, is going to be a big part of moving forward. Mm-hmm. So uh, I am serious. Uh, I do want to hear from you on what you actually, what you're actually doing on the internet. Now, and I'll. Uh, so here's the number: 800-826-1495. Uh, and it's natural to kind of lead a double life. In that you, you know, you want. I want all my friends, and family to think that I'm doing nothing but watching PBS. Uh, or listening to NPR, or UPR, obviously. And I do listen to a lot of UPR. I, I am an avid consumer. Um, but I'll come clean here. I, I have been streaming on YouTube uh, a lot of uh, Hallmark romances. Oh, nice. Um, so, so there you go. I'll, I'll come clean with that. I think because it's safe. Mm-hmm. It's predictable. <laughs> you know it's going to happen. <laughs> and uh, and, and it's, it, it's, it's a way to de-stress. Yep, yep. I don't know if uh, Jeannie or, or Lynn, you want to come clean. Jeannie? Lynn, you... um, I, mine's kind of pathetic. I've spent a lot of time lately trying to figure out Snapchat and, and get my daughter to, <laughs> to respond to my snaps. She's the, me. You're, you're beyond me. You're, you're ahead of me. I haven't even dipped my toe into that world. So. Wow. I, I think on a, on a true confession, embarrassing level, I've been playing this cat collecting game. I think it's I think it's my way of decompressing from the political season we just had. But yeah, it's so, this. So tell me about. It. I, I oh my gosh, this. this is too. It's it's called Niko Atsume, and it's from Japan. <laughs> you just oh yeah, it, it gives you a backyard, and you put out food, and cats come, and that's really? it. Yep. Wow. <laughs> that is the. In- Entire game, man. This really you've you've got us in confession mode, that, Tom. But that makes me feel better about my Hallmark romances. Good, yeah. 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 My undergrads, my undergrads loved that game. Oh, they okay. said nothing about Hallmark romance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'd love to hear from you. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. What do you tell your friends you're doing, and what are you actually doing? Um, uh, and that kind of get that gets us back to folklore, isn't mm-hmm. it? The folklore studies what people are actually doing out there yeah i would i would say so and i think we saw a lot of that in our our trends this year and a lot of what i certainly saw people doing was coping Mm -hmm. with a variety of ways coping Mm -hmm. by by finding their political voice and coping by by setting aside politics and going for other stuff like Mm -hmm. creepy clowns and harambe the gorilla I want to follow up with that. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Tell us what you're doing on the internet. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxcess at gmail dot com. Let's take a brief break. When we come back, I do want to jump into these uh, trends. Uh, interesting uh, trends. Uh, I don't know. I don't think this is a recent trend, but I I pulled up folklore, and I think I got this on the the USU folklore uh, program Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, Japanese cabbies report picking up ghosts um so let's talk about that and and the the current trends when we uh, come back it could take a lot of time and cost a lot of money to flag all the fake news out there so many people are looking for ways of dealing with it and and one of the ways that has been floated is through what's called artificial intelligence I'm Molly Wood, employing the robots to sort out the truth. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio.
the Obama administration financed fossil fuel projects abroad. Obama has been very clear about his concern about climate change, but the bank financed three times more than the George W. Bush administration had done within his administration. These plants would emit as much CO2 as Obama's clean power plan could save. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have been talking about fake news and uh, Trump's tweets and uh, looking at our digital world, good and bad, through the lens of folklore. And we're now talking about trends in digital folklore. We have with us the uh, co-heads of the digital folklore program at USU, uh, Jeannie Thomas, who is head of the Department of English at USU, and Lynn McNeil joins us in studio, who is uh, assistant professor of folklore in the English department at uh, USU. We're also asking you... Uh, to, to come clean. You can use a fake name if you need to. Uh, the three of us have come clean. Uh, what we present to the world, for, for me, it's I watch all PBS all the time <laughs> and listen to nothing but NPR, but, I, but I've come clean that I actually i am watching some Hallmark romances. and, uh, and it, it <laughs> well, went a uh, 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 little higher up than that. Last night, uh, I was on uh, Google Play uh, reading some P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, so that's still, man. it's frothy, but it's, but it's, uh, I don't know. I but think it's that's good. all still pretty, pretty solid when it comes pretty. to the deviant things <laughs> one might be doing on that's the right. internet. It, it, yeah, it's, 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 you know, you could consider it literature. It's farce, but it's classic farce. Uh, so the, the number to, uh, to reach us here is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. What are you doing out there on the internet? The, perhaps you, uh, haven't told your friends. You could tell us. It's nothing but us and our audience here. Uh, so, uh, Lynn McNeil, I want to uh, jump into some digital trends. This maybe isn't a – we were talking off air that this is at least since the 1500s, right? So I was reading – I haven't uh, seen this variant of this. Uh, cabbies in Tokyo or in, mm-hmm. in Japan picking up what turns out to be ghosts, and it has a connection to the to the tsunami. Yeah, absolutely, and that was one that my students alerted me to in the semester that that was really circulating, and um, it came out, interestingly, as a news report, not fake news in the sense that the news report was fake, but um, the, the story was certainly perhaps unprovable, um, and that's one of the most classic urban legends that has been documented at least the earliest genie perhaps you know of an earlier version than I do but the earliest version of the vanishing hitchhiker legend that I know of is I think from the 1500s in Scandinavia where someone is traveling by sleigh and picks up a young woman who disappears before the end of the journey and we have that legend just collected time and again um, all over the place and now we have it showing up in a news report from Japan you know just a year or two ago that circulates on the internet and it's one of those the more things change, the more they stay the same sort of yeah. impressions. Just a, a excellent example to highlight how connected contemporary folklore is to folklore of the past. Uh, yes, yeah, scholars have even yes. traced that one back to Greek and Roman times. Nice. So oh, really? yeah. I don't I don't think you can escape the vanishing hitchhiker. Nope. I think they're always out there. Like maybe the creepy clowns. We'll see. Always yeah. out there. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, we'll see how much um, afterlife the creepy clowns have, which was, of course, this year's digital trend. Well, this past year's digital trend of the year. Jeannie uh, Thomas, to, to tell us, for those who escaped the creepy clowns, probably not many of us, what, uh, tell us about that. Um, well, you know, like a lot of folklore, these were actually recycled. But this summer, kids started reporting 
creepy clowns in the woods trying to lure them away with them. And starting in the 80s, there were accounts of creepy clowns in white vans trying to lure children away, Um, all of which points to the fact that sometimes, yes, indeed, clowns are creepy, um, which I think is one of the cultural truths that legend gets at, even though we, we can't find you know, cases of real menacing clowns out there very much, um, you know. So actually police were putting out warnings for people not to dress as clowns at Halloween because they were concerned about vigilante response. And um, both Lynn and I have talked about how it made sense in this very tense election year where um, people all across the country maybe thought the candidates were creepy clowns, at least uh, metaphorically or um, subconsciously, that some of those concerns might have been expressed um, by this legend circulating. Classic kind of urban legend mm-hmm. process here, but just done over the Internet to a great deal. And as you, as Jeannie Thomas, you were talking about creepy clowns, I was trying to determine in my mind, I've heard this on the news, and so I'd, I'd finally I think you identified the police were warning against mm-hmm. perpetrating uh, this, but for a moment I was thinking... Uh, Am I having trouble determining fake versus real news? Well, see, that's what happens. Um, research shows that even when you debunk it, just the fact that you report about it can often work to reinforce the story, the original story in people's minds. Hmm. So these things are tough to deal with. Yeah. Uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, talk about another digital trend uh, in folklore. Well, one of the... Uh one of the the other big ones that our digital trend of the year competition <clears throat> showed was the Dakota Access Pipeline protests and the ways that the internet really assisted in what on the ground was really a traditional folk protest. This has been something that various folk groups have done, you know, throughout history. But we saw a big use of the internet through hashtags. Um, Stories that were circulated online, even people using things like checking in on Facebook as a form of solidarity. For a brief period of time, there was an urban legend circulating that the police were using check-ins on Facebook to arrest people for um, obstruction and, and, you know, inappropriate protesting. And so there was this push that said, if we all check in to Standing Rock on Facebook, it'll confuse the police and they won't be able to, to you know, mess with these protesters anymore. And that, of course, turned out not to be the case. The police were not using Facebook check-ins mm-hmm. to harass people and us checking in was not helping, obviously, with that situation. Um, but we saw enormous opportunity online for people to get involved in a very localized political situation, even if they weren't in that local space. So what does this, it's interesting, what, Lynn McNeil, what can this tell us about ourselves? That, that's the crux, right, of at least a central investigation point for folklore. What does this tell us about ourselves? Man, I think it tells us a lot of things. I think, I think it tells us that we all and this is maybe a too general an answer, but I think it tells us that we, despite this huge web of interconnection that we have, we're all living what are experientially local lives. Only now our local lives extend to other parts of our country and other countries in the world. And we get to have a vernacular presence a, and an on-the-ground voice in things that are happening everywhere and anywhere. And that is a level on which we engage 
that really matters. Our our tweets and our hashtags and our internet memes about politics affect the election and affect people's perceptions of things. So I think that we, we see that you don't need a degree in political science to be involved in politics. And the it's it's just that now those voices are magnified to a way that, that they never have been before. And we're seeing the repercussions, both good and bad, of the magnification of everyday people's voices. Jeannie, do you have a, a more specific answer than that? Well, I think that's a good answer, Lynn. Um, I would also say one of the uh, things that happens, just bouncing off of what you were saying, and the research shows this, is a um, couple of things. One is that um, when you're um, watching something develop on the internet, like there's something going on, there's a protest going on, and you're getting live tweets from it, even if you're not there, you experience similar mm-hmm. feelings of immediacy. And that's the medium has allowed for that, and that's kind of a new thing, and that's part of why it's so engaging is because you do get that feeling. It's like you're there, even though you know you're not there. Yeah. So it does that. The other thing, um, you know, people tend to trash on Twitter and the Internet with legitimate reasons. Obviously, there are problems out there, complicated things to deal with, like fake news and these urban legends. At the same time, there's just there's some great research out last year that showed that um, these hashtags really do make a difference, and they really do um, change things. I'll give you an example. The very first digital trend of the year that our uh, ballot recognized and was voted by the scholars across the nation as the digital trend of the year was Black Lives Matter. And um, now research shows that that hashtag actually changed media coverage and actually brought media coverage to a problem that hadn't gotten much outside of the black community that other communities were not aware of and were not covering. And it also, um, and this is, this is some research and communication studies, so I'll give a shout out to that field. It also showed that people who disagreed with it were seeing the stuff and getting the message more than they would have otherwise. So it didn't say that they changed their mind, but it said, that they were getting the message more. And if you follow Twitter closely, you see that happening. You see people taking and retaking hashtags. So um, you have to work really hard not to be aware of the other side on a, on any issue that a hashtag represents. We're uh, coming down uh, just a couple of minutes left. I wanted to uh, put a phone call and an email in. Uh, so Melanie, I believe, uh, joins us. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, we can. We can. Uh, we can barely understand you. Uh, maybe put the handset close to your mouth. I don't know. Go go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, we uh, the call dropped. Uh, so sorry about that, Melanie. Uh, call back. Um, in the meantime, here's Steve. Steve says, "Are we revealing our dirty little pleasures? That's easy for me. I have a weakness for binging on science adventure series on streaming television. Westworld and The Man in the High Castle represent the top end of this weakness, but by no no means do I confine myself to let such lofty precincts. And I spend more time than I want to say in the basement watching and enjoying the likes of Marvel's Agents of Shield and Colony and so forth. Uh, so now I've confessed. Never thought of it as folkloric, though. He says, Steve, parentheses, my real name." 
It's brave of you, Steve. Brave of you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you, you, Steve. Uh, Thanks for confessing. And we just have a couple of minutes. Uh, You could confess your uh, your guilty uh, secret on the Internet or or on uh, in popular media. Uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, Steve says he never thought of this as folkloric. It, it, It does fit in, though, I think. Yeah, well, and I think we certainly see one of the elements we have now in our culture is that you know, in the past, TV was a passive experience. Now it's an active experience. We don't wait for a show to come on. We decide if we want to watch one episode or all 18 episodes of a season all at once. And then we turn around and engage in our fandom activities. We might be watching the show with a chat room of other fans open or a web forum where we can discuss what's coming up or share our opinions. We don't need the people we share our daily encounters with to watch the same shows as we do in order to find people to talk about with them. So on that whole level of active engagement where we can choose when we want to watch this, choose how we want to consume it, and then turn around and engage with it, we can talk about it, we can give spoilers, we can give speculations, we can find people just as devoted as we are and form a whole folk group just around that fandom. And that folk group is going to develop its own customs and its own folk speech. And this is, there's actually a growing number um, of articles and books on these folk elements of um, consumerism and pop culture fandom that really show that there's amazing, rich cultural stuff going on there. So it really is a different a different way of engaging with our culture. We have reached the end of our time. Thanks for everyone for participating. Uh, and uh, Jeannie Thomas, thanks for joining us from uh, from New Hampshire. You bet. And I will say to Steve that I think Netflix and chill is a definite, strong new custom in our culture. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, so thanks for for uh, responding, Steve. Thanks uh, for calling, Melanie, and I uh, hope to, to get you uh, uh, later on. Uh, Jeannie Thomas is head of the Department of English at Utah State University, has joined us from uh, New Hampshire. And the latest book edited was uh, Supernatural in Place, was it? Is that the, that the book, Jeannie? Yes. Um, and I think Lynn contributed uh, to, to, to that, uh, so that's a book you could uh, check out. Uh, Folklore Rules is uh, a yep. book written by Lynn McNeil, and uh, you can check out the USU Folklore Program on Twitter and uh, Facebook. Uh, Lynn McNeil, Assistant Professor of Folklore in the English Department at USU, thanks for being with us as well. Thank you so much for having me in. And thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.